Gresham College presents The Policy Responses by Professor Jagdeet Chadha. So let's start with a little bit of ancient commentary on the quality of our political classes in the UK. Um, you may guess I'm not a great fan of our political classes, that's why I'm an economist. Maybe the political classes aren't a great fan of economists, and maybe that's part of the problem. Um, the National Institute, of which I became director um, last year, honoured to be director of the National Institute last year, um, celebrates its 79th birthday tomorrow. So I wanted to um, start with something uh, written by an eminent previous deputy director of the Institute, uh, Christopher Dow, who uh, ended his career at, at deputy governor of the Bank of England. And he wrote um, a, a classic book on the management of the British economy in the early 1960s, where he coined the phrase demand management. Where he said that what the governments have been trying to do in the 1950s and 60s is control the level of demand so it meets the capacity of the economy to meet its supply. So if I can think of monetary and fiscal policy as being used to control demand so it doesn't get out of hand, or if there's a recession, stimulate demand, I can try and keep demand and supply in the economy in some even keel so the economy can, can expand without extreme volatility. That was the idea. And that idea that we all have in our minds as the received wisdom was something crystallised by work that Christopher Dow did while he was at the Institute uh, in the first incarnation in the 50s and 60s. But Christopher was, was, was critical of policy. What we see here is that he says, the major fluctuations in the rate of growth of demand and output in the years after 1952 were thus chiefly due to government policy. This is the monetary and fiscal policy that I've just been out, out, outlining. This was not, in, not the intended effect, he says. In each phase, it must be supposed, policy went further than intended. So stoked up more demand or created recessions. That's what he means by that phrase. In each phase, it must be supposed, as I've just said, policy went further than intended, as in turn did the correction of those effects. Um, as far as internal conditions are concerned, then budgetary and monetary policy failed to be stabilising, he argues, or argued, and must, on the contrary, be regarded as having been positively destabilising. And from this analysis, we then learnt words such as stop-go, which have seemed to be a great criticism of the economy in the 70s and 80s as we moved to the medium-term financial strategy under the first Thatcher government, um, uh, with the idea that if governments try to control the economy on a year-by-year -year basis, they may well create more instability because of our inability to understand events in real time and, our, um, and, and, and the quality of our instruments we have at our disposal. Because they work with lags, because they work with uncertainty, it's just as likely by using an instrument to control the economy, you may have a negative effect uh, as opposed to a positive effect. Positive being trying to achieve what you would like to achieve and negative uh, obtaining the obverse of that. And what, but what, at some deeper level, Dow, I think, was arguing is that the British political um, consensus is, 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 is co to concentrate on the next problem, the urgent, the next issue, is the thing that we have to address, rather than thinking about a strategy for the long run where we address the, uh, where we address the important. And I think we're seeing another example of this right now. It follows our attempts after the financial crisis to try and stabilise what was a deep, recession with uh, monetary and fiscal policy. We'll touch at that at the end of the lecture. But also right now, with the way we've been focusing on how we deal with the exit from the European Union. Now, clearly, as I said at my final lecture last year on, on, uh, in June, 
how that and the terms that we negotiate with leaving the European Union are critical and important. But they mask this debate about leaving the European Union, the deeper and more fundamental problems the UK economy faces. And in fact, the very debate on leaving the European Union, I would hazard the following explanation, is actually a result of the deeper problems that we have in the UK economy. So, we have a set of outcomes we're not happy with. We're then asked, what should we do? This is something we can do. Let's do it. It's not necessarily the thing that we ought to do to address the problem. Let me expand upon this argument. So I've already went through the first point. In fact, it's the disappointing growth in output or GDP per head um, is in fact, does in fact represent a lost decade. We've had no substantive growth in GDP per person in the UK for nearly 10 years. This is the first time we can notice such an event since we've been able to concoct records for the UK. And they exist reasonably well into the middle of the 18th century. So the start of the Industrial Revolution hasn't led to a period without growth in GDP per head. This is the critical point that our politicians are not addressing. I, I, and I don't know why we're not screaming more about it. Why aren't we saying, what are you chaps and chapesses doing about this? Instead, we have debates that are facile about who's taking part in which referendum campaign and which numbers any political, uh, any political leader can understand or not understand. Let me put some simple charts in front of you that I think we can all understand. But I think it's also a function of the fact that we've tended to concentrate on the next problem. And by concentrating on the next problem, that's meant we haven't concentrated on the deep problems. Let me outline the depth of the problems. Here I'm just showing the path of output in the UK from each of the post-war recessions. So 100 is the peak before the recession starts. You get a top line, and the economy goes into a recession, it goes down, and then eventually it climbs out. So you just think of that U-shape as a typical... Try not to hit that too much. Typical path of the economy is it goes into recession and then slowly there's a recovery. So have that U-shape in your head. And you can see in the early recessions in the 50s and 60s, this period of demand management that, that Dow is talking about, the recessions are relatively short and not very deep. We're starting at 100 and we're falling a percent or two. And along the bottom line, we're showing quarters. So four quarters or so a year after the start of the recession, they're over. A sneeze and they're gone. That's the kind of recessions that we've had in that earlier period. But we can see the dotted lines from 1990, from 1979, and arguably the recession we're still living through have been both deeper and longer, with the current recession being the deepest and the longest. So there's a real question mark there. How do you deal with the recession? Well, we've talked about these in previous lectures. You think about monetary and fiscal policy stimulating demand. And if they stimulate demand by cutting interest rates or running budget deficits, demand will rise more quickly and the recession won't last as long. You will know, and I'll show you later on, that we've had some of the most stimulatory monetary and fiscal policies in our history over the last 10 years. And yet, the response of demand has been laggardly and slow and hasn't, has only just meant the level of GDP, this is not GDP per head, just output itself, returned, as you can see here, some six to eight years later, back to the previous peak of output before the recession started. So despite all those expansionary policies, we were unable to get a response in demand. 
And my argument today is that because our supply side has been fundamentally weakened by successive governments that haven't addressed the supply side of the economy adequately. And what do I mean by the supply side of the economy? Think of the economy as something that produces goods and services. It produces goods and services by combining lumps of capital with lumps of labour, and it adds to that capital and labour its level of technological progress or its understanding of the economy, which we also call productivity. So by combining capital and labour, I can then create a level of output by multiplying that capital and labour by the level of productivity in the economy. And very, very broadly speaking, the ratio of outputs to those inputs of capital and labour are productivity. So if productivity increases over time, for the same level of capital and labour inputs, I can produce more output. And if we examine the path of UK growth over the very long run, it's the growth of productivity that by and large explains the growth in our living standards over time rather than anything else. And yet, when we look at the UK, of course, there's volatility in, in, in productivity growth. Year to year, there are business cycles and shocks to demand. But what we can see is if we take long-run averages of 10 or 15 years, the rate of productivity growth has slowed over time from some 2% down to something like 1% to something under 1% in the most recent period and probably hovering around zero. Um, at the moment. So our ability to add to output through a given level of capital and output has deteriorated over time. Now, if I don't want to look at total factor productivity, that's what we do with capital and output to produce, uh, capital and labour to produce a given level of output, I could look at the, the productivity of labour alone. So that is, if I employ a worker for an hour, how many widgets does she or he produce in that hour? That's what productivity, labour productivity is measuring. And in almost exactly the same pattern, we can see cyclical fluctuations in productivity depending upon the state of demand in the economy. But if we take these longer run averages, we see dwindling levels of labour productivity. And that reflects the quality um, of our labour. It also reflects the fact that we tend to prefer to employ people for longer hours than in a smarter fashion. So again, we see labour productivity falling over time. And indeed, labour productivity is the primary determinant of real wages. Um, then there's not an exact mapping between labour productivity and real wages because real wages depend upon the set of labour market institutions such as trade unions minimum wages and, 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 and social welfare transfers. So there's not an exact mapping. But what we can see is, despite a middle period in the 50s and 60s where there was some strong growth in real wages, successive, uh, successive levels of falls in real wages. And real wages, of course, are the things that matter to most households in terms of their consumption basket. Most of us live off the wages that we bring in rather than the returns to wealth that we hold. So if we want to understand consumption, which is a good way of understanding people's levels of welfare or utility, it's real wage growth that tends to matter. And we can see, along with the falls in total factor productivity and labour productivity, real wages have fallen as well in terms of their growth rate over this time. What does that all mean? Well, one way to think about an economy's um, level of overall level of uh, productivity and, and how it has uh, turned 
investment into the capacity to build the supply side is the ratio of the capital stock to the level of output of goods or services that it produces in any one year. And in the UK, you can see that the ratio of capital to output in line with this fall in productivity, the story that I'm telling you, has fallen over time. The capital to output ratio was between nearly three in in this earlier period. It fell, uh, we were told, in the 70s and 80s because of volatile inflation. Firms weren't investing so that the capital stock fell. Capital stock falling tends to lead to lower levels of productivity in the economy. And we were told that if we got inflation under control and set up rules for the market economy, we could expect investment in the capital stock to increase. And yet, the capital stock has continued to fall. I should say that there may be measurement problems here. It's hard to measure the capital stock. So some of the story I tell may be exaggerated for our inability to measure the whole capital stock in the economy accurately. But I think there's very little evidence to suggest the capital stock has been increasing relative to output over this long period. And underpinning capital stock is a stock. The flow into capital is investment. So the key to building up productivity and the capital stock is to get firms to invest more capital in the UK economy. And here we're showing the growth of investment in the UK economy on an annualised basis. We can see yet again, in the first period, we had relatively high levels of investment. These have fallen in the 70s for these inflation or volatile inflation reasons I've suggested. Yes, they've been a little bit higher in the last decade, but let's not forget real interest rates have been basically zero in this period. In this world, the question we should be asking is why hasn't investment been even higher given the level of real rates that we've seen in the economy? So I wouldn't say that's an improvement conditioned on the state of the economy by any means. So I'm building a picture here of an economy that has a deteriorating capital stock deteriorating investment trends, deteriorating growth in real wages, and ultimately a deteriorating rate of productivity. So why isn't it the case that we're all in the streets screaming at the lack of quality economic performance? Well, let's see if we can begin to understand that. One story, as we outlined in a previous lecture, is that what if it's the case that we've been dealing with dwindling income by borrowing more. And one thing we can look at is is our propensity, this is household debt, relative to output in any one year. We can see that with the abolition of uh, various forms of capital controls and and increasing competition in banking, the level of debt or household debt that we were holding rose from something like 30% to 40 to 50% in the 80s. Let me be absolutely clear, this may have been an optimal increase. It could very well be the case that households should hold some debt to plan for their future. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It depends um, what it's used for and whether they're able to pay it back. But we can see another ratchet up in the level of debt in the 90s to approach something over 80%. And following the financial crisis, we've seen some adjustment downwards of households of, of in general relative to overall income started to pay back some of their levels of debt. Yes, it's household. And this is relative to GDP, not to household income. So that's where the numbers are a little bit, a little bit less scary than would look like if they were household income. Household income or consumption is approximately 60 to 65% of GDP. So you'd multiply those numbers by, and divide by 0.65, and that would crank it up to a higher number. 
this is relative to output, and it does include. And you can see that the pattern is replicated in the rest of the advanced world, but the UK, at least in this measure, seems to lead the world. Something to be proud of, perhaps. Okay. So, so it could be the case that our wages haven't kept up in the way we might have imagined, and we've dealt with it to some degree by taking on more debt that's allowed consumption to be higher than it would otherwise be the case, that may have mitigated some of the anxiety or anger at the lack of growth in real wages. That's one story we might want to carry. Excuse me, I'll just take a quick sip of water, if I may. And there's an even healthier part of the story. We can look at the household balance sheet and look at the level of net wealth. In fact, in a previous lecture, we looked at this in much more detail. And this is another source of comfort in, in, in the UK um, economy, that household wealth, and this is aggregate. Now, we also know there's a lot of um, heterogeneity, a lot of different experiences for wealth in different levels of the household. But in aggregate, the household wealth has risen markedly relative to the level of consumption. So people have been getting wealthier over this long period. On average, something in the region of around 10% a year has been the increase in the household uh, wealth levels over this period. And that itself may have provided some comfort against dwindling real wages. So somewhere out there in aggregate, there's an increase in wealth, of which people are maybe getting a return from in, in payments uh, from those wealth in terms of returns, or they may be borrowing against in order to deal with uh, shortfalls in income or real wages. And what we can see is if we look at the balance sheet of um, the household sector some 20 years ago, slightly over 20 years ago, we can see that assets, liabilities equal each other. The net worth of the sector at the time was 2.8 trillion. Um, real estate holdings were 1.1 trillion with loans of just under 500 billion. So we had net worth in housing of uh, around 600 billion some 20 years ago. Um, and for those of you who remember the previous lecture, we're, we're sort of holding wealth in the household sector almost 50-50 between real estate and insurance and pensions. In the US, for example, rather than 50-50, it's more like around 12% that people hold in housing. So we have a, a much higher propensity to hold our wealth in housing in the UK than otherwise. If we crank forward to the most recent observations in 2015, um, you see that the ratios are even moved even further towards the holding of real estate, holding 5.3 trillion pounds of real estate uh, wealth, and we could divide by the number of households to get the average price of a house. I'll leave you to do that on your own. You divide by 26 million. I'll leave that as an exercise. Send in your answers, and I'll mark them uh, later on for you. Um, the loans against those uh, overall levels of assets, if, if we imagine these are all mortgages or loans against debt, 1.6, um, leaving us with around 3.7 trillion pounds of, of housing assets spread across those 26 million households, which leaves um, a substantive net worth held by those households. Our overall net worth is, is just over 10 trillion, which is a, a large number. And you can see that we're actually holding more in real estate than we are in insurance and pensions. But on balance, if we add up all financial assets, there are a similar amount to tangible assets in real estate. So could it be the case that, somehow or other, despite the fact our real wages and our productivity levels have been low, we've been comforting ourselves 
with ever-increasing value of our uh, financial position, particularly in housing. I say that because of our proportions that we hold in housing compared to the rest of the world are much higher. In the US, as I've said earlier, it's about 12%. In other countries, it's even less. So could it be the case that we haven't had the level of anxiety we might have otherwise had because of these assets that we're holding? And to understand that further, you remember in a previous lecture, I joked about um, not offering investment advice, and I continue not to offer investment advice. But what is incredibly interesting is if that you re-index the, house, the UK house price index, and it's hard to measure house prices because you haven't got a constant panel of houses that you can assess every time. You've got to look at transactions. So it's not an easy thing to construct a house price index. But if you take an, a, a sort of uh, example house price index and rebase it to 100 for 1980 and compare it to the FT100 uh, uh, all-share price index, not all-share, the FT100 price index, I'm not saying that they've grown on average at the same rate. Clearly, you've done slightly better if you held equities or housing. But the point is, over a 35-year period, they're basically on the same scale. To an approximation, they're not that different. And the other point with equities are that they're considerably more volatile. So the question you'd ask yourself, are you getting a sufficiently higher return from equities to compensate you for the extra risk by which I mean volatility that you have from holding those equities. You can see that you've got a severe endpoint problem with equities. If you were lucky enough to retire in, what's that, about 1997? And if you were randomly three years younger, you would have retired in 2000, your final net worth would have been, rather than 800, something like 500. And that would be a random event, nothing you could do anything about. That's why equities are risky. We don't know year to year what their value is going to be. On the other hand, we don't actually see anything like that kind of... Well, a little bit here, but nothing like the regular variations in equities. It looks like housing may not, in the UK case, be a bad investment. Again, I'm not giving investment advice, but it could very well be a result of uh, lack of uh, building, but also the ability to borrow against housing may make it a liquid form of wealth. I have a story of declining productivity... And I have a story of increasing household wealth. Maybe they're netting each other out. The question then is, leading to that, does, has that led to some inequality? Imagine I'm a person who only lives on my wages. And suppose I'm another type of person, the Gresham audience, who has large amounts of property at their disposal and is able to live off the rent from their properties. Has the society divided in that way to lead to an increase in inequality? That's the next question we should be asking ourselves. Are capitalists doing very well and are workers doing very badly? Okay, my, my best Jeremy Corbyn hat on. So what we then look at is the Gini coefficient. And I gave a lecture a couple of um, lectures ago on inequality in the UK. And the surprising measure is the Gini coefficient tells you, just the best way to think about it, is when it goes up, inequality increases. And these are, these are data from uh, Tony Atkinson, who sadly passed away on New Year's Day this year telling us about UK income inequality. And the interesting fact is, despite the things I've just been talking about in the, in the recent past, income inequality rose most markedly in the late 70s and early 80s. Since then, it's been broadly stable. Meaning whatever effects I'm talking about are either only affecting the very rich 
so that they're not affecting the income inequality. In fact, income inequality has only increased at the very top percentile, or 0.1 percentile. And offsetting that, there's been a reduction in income inequality at the very uh, at the, uh, below 60% of the median. So those people earning slightly less than the median have moved up. So the income inequality has fallen there. And that means that the overall distribution has not become more equal. That then means we can think of this as a representative story. So in aggregate, yes, our wages have fallen, but it's been compensated for by an increase in wealth. Overall, therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what are the problems that we face? Well, one way that inequality has represented itself is regionally. So rather than at the household level, which is what the Gini coefficient is looking at, let's look at the regions. And this is data from the ONS. The NUTS is not a union. It's just a way of classifying regions in the country. Um, and what we're doing here is just normalising the average level of productivity in the UK to 100. And you can see that only two regions overall on average, within each region there's a lot of differences as well. So we're just adding up the regions and treating it as one entity. Only two regions are above average. Now, again, for any politicians in the room, not everyone can be above average. Be absolutely clear about that, if I may. But we have two regions um, above average, and it's London and the South East. That means everyone else is below average, and that seems to me a critical part of the story. Where the inequality comes in is not overall in the country, it's a regional story about inequality. Now, productivity here doesn't measure exactly income in an area because of commuting. So I might be highly productive in London, but I might live in a different part of the country. So the numbers change slightly, but the broad picture is very much the same, that we have different levels of productivity driving regional inequality in the UK. And we're going to look at the same thing in terms of uh, GVA is gross value added, so it's another measure of productivity by cities. And you can see there's a relatively small number of cities, um, the London-Bristol Corridor and Aberdeen, um, which I think fluctuates very much with the price of oil, so I'm told, but someone can tell me how that works. And again, the rest of the cities on average are below this national average, suggesting again the inequality has manifested itself as a regional problem rather than something that we'd think about as an aggregate problem across the whole economy. So, let's recap the story so far. Terrible productivity, low growth in wages, offsetting that, large increase in house prices, large increase in net worth of the household sector, possibly related to the activities of the financial sector, leading to uh, eventually a crash in the financial sector, which we offset with extremely active responses by monetary and fiscal policymakers. This is UK policy rate in the post-war period. Other policies were enacted, quantitative easing and other things we've talked about in previous lectures. But I'm simply illustrating here, relative to anything we can imagine in the past, nominal and real rates have been very uh, stimulative of the UK economy over this period. Do you have a question now? I've got to stop hitting this thing. I should paint it red. No. Yes, sir. This is the policy interest rate in the UK. The interest rate. Yes, that's quite right. I should have been clearer. So it went down to half a percent um, 2009 and quarter of a percent last August. And I'm just pointing out these have been low and very stimulative. Uh, in, in the economy for a long time, and yet we're not seeing a strong response in the economy. Fiscal policy. 
Fiscal policy, again, our politicians tend to talk in terms of deficits, which is the flow rather than the level of debt. If we accumulate the deficits, we get the level of debt. Here I'm showing the level of public debt relative to income in a new year. And this is the period immediately after World War II. We see this long decline in public debt as we grew out of the level of debt and ran surpluses and paid it down. And it's reasonably stable in the 80s and 90s, around 30 to 40 percent. But the shock of the financial crisis has raised the level of public debt to something approaching 90 percent. So, again, the dialogue we've had in the UK has been very misleading. The discussion in the last five or six years has all been about austerity or uh, fiscal consolidation or whatever other phrase you might want to use. But behind that, we've had the largest increase in public debt in peacetime history in the UK. And again, we have data on UK debt going back to the 17th century. We haven't had anything like this in peacetime. Yes, we've had wars in which debt was increased, but not in peacetime. Again, so the demand management has done, I would submit, as much as it can, with monetary policy at its floor and public debt not far off its ceiling. Yes? Is it public? Is it public in terms of government? Government oh, debt, sure. just government debt. When we talk about public debt, we, we mean just that held by the state rather than not private no, debt. No, no, not, not, no, private, no. Not, not household debt, not firm debt, um, just public debt. And if we underpin that, we're not worried about particularly, this is the sequence of deficits. This is the deficit before we pay interest rate on debt. This is the red line is when we pay interest rate on debt. And we see that we've been in deficit actually since 2003, before the start of the financial crisis. So the fiscal position had clearly deteriorated before the financial crisis, which suggests that our ability to take tax from a digitised economy with mobile capital and labour may be harder than it was in the 70s and 80s and 90s. We have to rethink how we can capture tax. Not a very easy problem. But again, it's not something that I'm hearing any great sense from our potential leaders. How are we going to raise the taxes that we need to fund a modern economy? Now, so I, I could talk about the way fiscal policy has moved away from public investment into expenditure on health um, and also on uh, welfare. And some of that, of course, is right. Those people who are suffering may need support. But the Office of Budgetary Responsibility cranked forward a forecast in January of where we think the level of public debt to GDP will go in the UK, given the demographic bulge as people get older, and given the escalating costs of health. And the number they arrived at for 2060, which is not that very far away, is 232% of GDP. If we maintain our current level of expenditure, and if people are growing older at the rate they are, by 2060, I don't even think about how old I will be but I'll be well into my 90s, so I always think I'll be around. So, so um, I, 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 uh, we, have to be, we have to think very hard about how we reconfigure our economy to deal with those kinds of costs. Now, we could think about the numerator, which is what we spend on health and what we spend on, on, on ageing, but we have to think about the denominator. How do we get the economy growing faster? If we grow at 1% a year the economy will double every 70 years. If we get to 2%, it's going to double every 35 years, and, and so on and so forth. So it's the denominator we need to think hard about, and that requires public investment in infrastructure, which I'll talk about shortly, and it requires us to think hard about things like research and development expenditure. 
This is a, a chart just to show where the G7 average is. This is as a fraction of GDP in research and development. Research and development is consistently shown to be a driver of output in the economy. That's the denominator that I'm talking about. And you see, the, of course, I'm an economist, so I've arranged this chart to maximise the point I'm trying to make, so I put my hand up as trying to cheat you here. Here's the G7 average in the last 30 years, heading to 2% or more, and the UK has been under 2% for over 25 years. And this is just an example of how bad we've been at public investment, research and development, and infrastructure spending, all of which are consistently shown to have that magic idea of a multiplier. Can we spend a pound and create more than a pound in output? These are the areas that we can. And they're things that we haven't been addressing in the UK, as you can see, for a very long time. Not just now. And here's my horror chart. This is the thing I want you to take home. Remember and uh, shout at the politicians when they come and knock on your door. The red line is the level of output per hour worked, so our measure of labour productivity in the UK. And we've just shown it from 1993, but I could have shown it going back another 50 or 60 years. And that dotted line is the trend. So that's what we might have projected, or more importantly, what we have come to expect. That's the key thing in a society. We're planning ahead in terms of what we might do. What have we come to expect in a society? Well, that's often a result of what's happened in the past. And what we've come to expect is that dotted line, which is approximately growth of 2% a year per year every year, which is what we've had for a century. But, particularly since 2005 and 7, and it could very well be the case that some of the numbers here have been exaggerated uh, because of um, the way the financial markets were operating at that time. What we can see here is that there's been no movement at all up in these numbers in the last decade. And more importantly, our shortfall relative to those expectations is large in the order of 15 to 20%. And I submit this is the cause of our anxiety. This is the cause of the fact we have referenda and elections happening every year, that we're not quite sure where we are in the world and we're looking at people to blame. Actually, this is the thing that's the cause of it all, I think, is our low level of productivity in the economy. But let me say very briefly, these are very hard calculations to make. Um, hours are not particularly well captured in the economy. We have to go mostly on measurement in the manufacturing sector, large fraction of our economies in the service sector, it's very hard to capture hours. It's very hard to capture productivity in the service sector because you charge what you can for it. So, of course, I use the numbers with circumspection. Hours are also difficult to capture because a larger fraction of our workforce are working part-time hours as well. But when I make this observation, even if I attach appropriate caveats, which I always like to think I do when I present results to you, here at Gresham. I think it's such an outstanding um, deviation that it survives any recalculation through other robustness checks. So yes, the numbers have a health warning, but the size of the gap is large enough to still be concerned. We can look at the performance of the sectors in the economy, uh, and one of which is our favourite in the City of London, financial and insurance activities, 
in the 10 years prior to the crisis and the 10 years after the crisis. And what we're doing is looking at their average productivity in, in, in the period, prior and before. Um, and we can see, for example, in the financial sector, very, very approximately the average growth rate of productivity was 3% prior to the crisis and minus 3% after the crisis. And so the question we don't ask ourselves as economists is the fall in productivity being caused by some mean reversion? Were those that were very high before very negative afterwards, or was it a general movement down in them all? And the way we would do that is we just run a simple regression. And if it was a mean reversion, we'd expect there to be a negative relationship. So those that were high before are low, and those that were low before are high. as a catch-up process. But what we find, and I've cut this many ways, I should say Paul at the back has cut this many ways for me, we get the very same result that it's positive, in the sense in which that tells us there's been an overall shift down in productivity across all sectors of around 2% following the financial crisis. So even though it's very tempting to blame our friends in the City of London, it doesn't look like it. It's a general effect on the whole economy of a reduction of 2%. Yes, I understand the point. That's exactly why we did this bit of work to try and see what it was. And there's a consistent amount of work out there that suggests that it is a generalised effect. So... In a minute, well, even now I could tell you my view is that I, I don't think it's the fault of financial insurance activities, but I think nearly all firms require financial services at some level, either for loans or for working capital or for, for whatever it may be for the purchase of their property. And if the financial sector is impaired in some sense, then that may well drive down the activity across the board in the economy. So I think that's an important part of the story. I also don't think it's the whole story. If you want to a dissection of all the possible reasons for the productivity slowdown, please read my uh, election briefing that was published this morning by NISA, funded by the Nuffield Foundation, where I go through all the arguments. You can have a look there. But if we look at each sector by sector, it looks like a general story rather than this reverse that you've outlined here. So my concluding remarks, and I'll lead to my solutions, are that... Um, I think productivity weakness frames most of the key developments in the UK economy, those of stagnant wages, low levels of investment, and a dwindling capital stock. It also helps us understand uneven performance at the regional level and rising perceptions of inequality, I think, regionally, more than anything else. I think the lack of infrastructure and in R&D contributes to that regional inequality. And what we can also see when we look at the household balance sheet is that our financial intermediation seems to concentrate on property-based lending. Extent to which we do that, I think it's generally harder for people who save into property rather than equities for that capital to recirculate elsewhere into the economy. It's a little bit less liquid than it would be if it was saved in other areas. We talked about this before. I think the large and persistent inequalities in productivity should be seen as an urgent policy priority. Um, and we should also ask about the role of trade and FDI and public investment on the other in alleviating the problem. What will happen to trade in FDI should we leave the European Union abruptly? Um, public investment, I don't think, has been a great source of debate by any of the parties that we lead up to the election. The monetary fiscal mix that we've had has involved loose monetary policy and fiscal policy that's focused on limiting expenditure rather than increasing public investment and R&D. So... What are we arguing? And I argue this really is the consensus of the view of many economists. It's not my personal view. It's not actually anything I've done 
a great deal of research on in my career, but I've read a lot of things in the last few weeks to get an idea of what I think the consensus is. And the consensus is, is that UK growth in productivity has disappointed markedly since the start of the financial crisis, and the gap looks like 15 to 20%. What does that mean? That had we followed the previous trend, we'd have 15 to 20% more income per week now. I'm sure that would be kind of valuable to most of us. It would be to me, I can tell you. And one of the reasons that we discussed in the previous lecture is that the mix of capital to labour employed in the economy is too low. We haven't got enough capital per labour employed. Now, employing labour in the early part of the recession was useful because it limited the scale of unemployment. But holding on to that labour and not investing is ultimately reducing the propensity for productivity to grow in the economy. Um, now, that would therefore mean the simplistic answer is just to increase investment, let the government do it, whether it's public or private. That's all good. But it must be an investment that the private sector itself would want. There's no point in giving a firm, uh, let me use a crass example, a lump of concrete if what it wants is a lump of steel. It's got to be investment that the firms would choose as part of their optimal mix in their production. And that's where you know, government has to be very careful in, in promoting investment. It's got to think hard about the needs of firms. And that's why it's often best done through banks and financial intermediaries who can monitor and screen firms and provide them with the money to buy the capital that they need given their individual business plans. I suspect the banking system which is going through, continually going through a period of retrenchment and reform, may be limiting firms' access to finance, either actually or in anticipation. If you're making a business plan and you think the bank can't help you, you may decide to move on without involving them. So I think the anticipation of a lack of support may also be important, as much as the actual lack of involvement. I think the public sector may be in a place to increase public investment in R&D, but this is going to require some difficult choices because, rightly, we want to maintain the health of the population and support people in old age where we can. So, ultimately, economic growth is a function of the quality of our institutions. And public policy's role is to underpin the quality of those institutions by continually providing incentives for those who are able to create economic growth. These are difficult questions but we should be able to turn to our potential political leaders for answers. That they have none shocks me, and I hope, or hope is the wrong word, um, it may shock you as well. Thank you for coming on. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.